0: All right, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 11. As we continue going through the book of Revelation, um, <clears throat> we take kind of a little parenthetical pause in kind of the, uh, the timeline and the story we've seen so far. Um, and kind of where we're getting is close to the middle point. And what we're looking at tonight is kind of this uh, parentheses where we kind of get a, a broad overview of, of what is to come with the emphasis being on um, God's salvation of Israel. So remember last week we saw kind of a a pause in the story uh, after the sixth trumpet was blown um, and John's message was reaffirmed to him. There was this little scroll that he was given to eat. It was sweet in his mouth but soured in his stomach. Uh, We talked about how the message that he had to take was sweet and the fact that this was God's plan, carrying out God's plan, but it was bitter in the fact that it brought about God's wrath and it brought about God's judgment on those who did not yet know Christ. And as we get to the end, we talked about how God's patience, uh, not that it ceases because God is always patient, but we get to the part of God's plan where God's patience is replaced by God's judgment. And so we're still kind of in that pause. The seventh trumpet doesn't start until verse 15 of Revelation chapter 11. And so in the first 14 verses of chapter 11, we're still kind of in this kind of middle spot where we're looking or getting a glimpse of one of the the main things that is to happen over the back half of the tribulation. Most people take the the seven-year tribulation. Some people just call the whole seven years the tribulation. Some call the whole thing the great tribulation. Uh, Some call the first three and a half years the tribulation. The second three and a half is the great tribulation. It's all basically the same time frame. So, so far, most of what we have seen with the the breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets, all occur within that first uh, three and a half years. And so today, or tonight, what we're looking at in chapter 11 is this kind of a middle spot before we move into the back half. So, here's what I want us to do. I want us to read verses 1 through 3. We're going to stop. We're going to pray. We're going to talk about kind of some of the, the different ways this can be viewed. And then we'll just kind of try to work our way through the passage. <clears throat> so let's read verses 1 through 3. It says, Then I was a measure, given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. God, I pray that as we look at your word, Father God, I pray for insight. God, I pray for clarity of thought. Father God, I pray that you would speak through your word and your spirit, Father God, to open hearts and open minds. And Father God, I pray this, as we look at your truth, God, that you would remind us that you are a God who is in control and a God who has a plan. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we start off, John is given this commandment to go and measure the temple. Now, just starting with the temple, we, got, we have to make a decision on how we are going to approach this text. There are three main views of what the temple represents. I'm going to try to plug these into the things that we've been talking about already. Now, we've talked about at the beginning that one of the main views is kind of the, the dispensational view. The dispensational view sees the uh, rapture happen at the beginning of the seven years. That kicks off the tribulation, uh, and then Jesus comes back uh, at the second coming, bringing the church with Him. And in the midst of that seven years, the church has been taken off the table. The church is uh, no longer in play, and God takes Israel and kind of takes them off the and puts them back at the forefront of the story. One of the key thoughts of dispensational um, belief or ideology or theology is that there is a strong distinction, a strong separation between the church and Israel. And when Jesus came on the scene and Jesus initiated the church, God took Israel and all the promises that God had made to Israel in the Old Testament. He put them on the shelf. The church is in existence now. The rapture will happen. The church will be gone. Then God will put Israel back on the forefront of the story, and Israel, all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament that have not yet been fulfilled in Israel will be fulfilled in this time. So that's kind of the dispensational view. So the dispensationalists will look at this passage and will say that this is the literal temple that in the midst of this first three and a half years, when all this other stuff is going on, Israel will... In some way, the the Dome of the Rock, which is one of the most uh, holy places for Muslims, which is sitting on the Temple Mount, will somehow be destroyed. Israel will be able to rebuild the temple, the Old Testament temple, and will reestablish... Um, animal sacrifices or uh, sacrifices for sin. That uh, everything that Israel had done will be reinstated in a very physical, a very real way. That's kind of a dispensationalist view. We've talked another view about how the, the church uh, is not raptured until at the end of the seven years, that the church is here throughout the whole tribulation. And a lot of people, not all, a lot of people who take this view say that as this talks about the temple, uh, the temple of God, as this talks about um, the temple is representative of The church. This has nothing to do with Israel. This has nothing to do with the Jewish people. This is solely the church. And so everything that is talked about here is dealing with the church. So that's kind of two of the main views that kind of sit on different sides or different ends of kind of your discussion when you discuss this type of theology, this revelation, this end-time theology. Then there's a third and the third is where I'm going to stand. So the third is the direction we're going to come from tonight. And it's almost like a, a marriage of the two. The third does not see the temple as a literal temple, uh, but the temple is representative of Israel. And this is a story or a spot in the story where we are told where God sends, um, <clears throat> God works all of this out so that the gospel comes in a very strong way, in a very real way, to the nation of Israel. And we see not a total salvation of Israel. Not that every Jew is saved solely because they're a Jewish person. But we see a mass salvation in Israel. Israel. We see God's protection. We see God's promise of protection. And over this back three and a half year span, when the Antichrist rises, when uh, uh, trouble and trial and tribulation happens towards those who are believers on the earth, that this is a very special time in chapter 11 where we see the nation of Israel, God do a very special work, almost like sending a revival to the nation of Israel. So, from this view, this is not a literal temple. Uh, Israel has not been put on the stage and the church taken off. They both coexist. But this is a very specified, specified and specific time where Israel is the focus and we see a mass salvation in the people of Israel. Okay, so with that kind of out of the way, let's start looking at what is going on in the passage. John says that he was given a measuring rod and told and go to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, the measuring or the idea of measuring here is not um, to get dimensions. It's not to get the size. We already know all that. Go read the Old Testament. Go read uh, Leviticus. Go read where the dimensions are given in Exodus. Um, And we've got the size of the temple. We know what the temple is supposed to look like. Go read uh, where Solomon built the temple. We have that. But one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is whenever measuring is mentioned like this, it is either a sign of God's judgment or it's a sign of God's protection. Zechariah 2 verses 1 through 5 says this, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, Where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem and to see what its width and what its length. Behold, the angel who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst." So in that kind of story, we have the idea of measuring being God's protection. God says, I'm going to be the walls. I'm going to be the one to protect Jerusalem. And it's a declaration of God's protection, of God's favor. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 13, uh, we have just the opposite. It says, And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plum of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem uh, as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemy. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger. So there in 2 Kings, we have this picture of measuring uh, being this idea of judgment. And so twice or multiple times, but those are two examples, we have the idea of measuring not being about dimensions and size, but being about a declaration of you're either under God's protection or you're under God's judgment. Well, in this context, as the temple and those who are in it worshiping are measured, they are measured for God's protection. God is going to protect those who are in the temple. Now he tells them to measure the temple, those who are inside, but in verse 2 it says, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The way the temple was set up, you had the building in the center. You had the holy place and then you had the, the holy of holies. Uh, the holy place was where uh, the priests could go. They could perform their works. They could per- go and perform their duties. But the holy of holies, only one priest went. The chief priest went once a year and that was it. No one else went to the holy of holies. When Solomon's temple was built, that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. Uh, that's where the people recognized this is where God is. This was the, um, the declaration that God was with Israel. And so you had the Holy of Holies, and you had the Holy Place, and then outside of that you had a few courts, the, uh, the courts of the women, the courts of the, uh, of the, of the Israelites. You had these, these open air spots where the nation of Israel could come, they could be taught, they could be declared, uh, God's Word could be declared to them, uh, they could come and to fellowship. This was kind of like their church area, their church spot. And then outside of that, you had the court of the Gentiles. So if you are a non-Jew, so that means anyone who's not a Jew is a Gentile, If you were a non-Jew, if you were a Gentile, this was as far as you could go. You were not allowed into any of the other courts. You were not allowed to the court of the women or the court of the Israelites. You were definitely not allowed to the holy place and and definitely not allowed in the holy of holies. In fact, they had laws and rules that if a Gentile were to enter past the court of the Gentiles, then they could be stoned. They could be killed. And so... When John says, or when John is told to measure this, he is told to measure kind of the building with the holy place and the holy of holies and these courts for the women, the court for the Jews, kind of these courts where Israel was to stay. But this outer court, the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the city, was to be unmeasured, meaning they were outside of God's protection. And it tells us that they will be trampled on... um, that they will be trampled, the holy city, uh, for 40, the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months, that's that second year and a half. And so the picture that we have here is within this holy of holy, within this holy place, this place that was measured, There is a remnant of Israelites who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then when all of this trampling is to happen, the trampling of the outer court, the trampling of the nation of Israel, this three and a half years, this 42 months, this back half of the three and a half years of the tribulation, as this... War against Israel is to happen, as this trampling over Israel is to happen, as the as the Antichrist rises up and makes war with Israel, with the people of God. You have a remnant of believers, a remnant of Jewish Christians, who at some point, whether it's before the, uh, uh, the tribulation starts, whether it was in that first three and a half years when many people came to know Christ, we had those um, Jewish witnesses... You have this remnant of people who are believers, who have God's protection, uh, just like we've seen through some of the other uh, trumpets being blown and seals being torn, God's protection, God's seal is on His children. So you have this protection against them, but for the rest of the nation of Israel, there will be this war that is made against them by the Antichrist. Now, in the midst of this, he tells us that there are two witnesses that are going to come onto the the scene. Verse 3 says, And I will grant my authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So kind of at this mid-spot in the tribulation, We have the Antichrist making war against the nation of Israel, making war against Israelites. And at the same time, we have these two witnesses, these two prophets, the clothed and sackcloth. That was kind of a traditional garb of Old Testament prophets. These two witnesses or these two prophets come on to the scene. Now, let's see what it tells us about the two prophets, the two witnesses. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, that's a reference to Zechariah chapter 4, where uh, Zechariah has a vision of lampstands. Uh, I believe it's seven lampstands and these two olive trees. And these olive trees provide um, the oil for the lampstands. This is a direct um, tie to that, showing us they have God's authority uh, as his witnesses. Verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street in the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Let's just stop there for a second. Okay. So these two witnesses come onto the scene in a very supernatural sense. Now, most people believe that these are either Elijah and Moses. Uh, Elijah and Moses were the two that were with Jesus on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. Elijah and Moses were two prophets who uh, prophesied for God, led the people. Uh, Moses through the wilderness. Elijah leading the people back to God in their time of apostasy uh, when... um, Oh, I can't think of the name of the the king and queen at the time, but... um, Ahab was the king. I can't remember his wife's name, uh, but they had led the people away from God. Elijah was used, uh, especially there on that mountain with the prophets of Baal during that time of drought. Uh, Elijah was used to draw the people back to God. So you have these two witnesses. Either it is literally Moses and Elijah, or it's two, um, two prophets, two witnesses that God rises up that are in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, much like John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. But whichever one you want to hold to, I think both are valid. Either one is fine to say or to believe. But you've got these two witnesses that come that for 1260 days they prophesy. They declare God's truth. They prophesy the gospel. They are declaring Jesus Christ and salvation through Jesus Christ. And During this time, they're happening during this back half of the tribulation, when the the, the beast, when the Antichrist is making war against them, for the time of their ministry, anyone who tries to attack them, it tells us will be killed by fire coming from their mouth. Once again, maybe this is symbolic, maybe this is literal. I tend to believe that it's literal when we think of them being in the, in the vein of an Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets did some pretty crazy things. Elisha called down a, a bear to come and maul some kids for making fun of him. So prophets did pretty wild things. So I tend to think this is very literal, that, um, that if they are to be attacked, that the, uh, their enemies are consumed in this very supernatural way. But this, for this back half of this time, this 1260 days, they are proclaiming their message. They are proclaiming the gospel. They are proclaiming that people would turn to him. And then the beast rises. That's the, the Antichrist. And they are killed. And it says that their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, I believe that this is giving us a hint into the nation of Israel at this time, which is another reason why I don't believe that that the church is gone and that Israel has been put back on the forefront because the city where their Lord was killed, that would have been Jerusalem. So uh, the idea here is that these two witnesses would have been killed in Jerusalem for three and a half days. Their bodies are left in the streets for people to see. People all over the world will be able to see this, obviously through the Internet, through YouTube, through everything else. And it tells us that that Jerusalem is symbolically Sodom and Egypt. What does that mean? Sodom, we understand, is biblically um, one of the most depraved cities and stories that we are told about. Uh, That um, Lot went there and Abraham begged God to spare Lot and his family. Uh, God sent those two angels to rescue Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah before they were destroyed. And when those two angels came in, the men of the city had gathered together, uh, demanded that Lot send those two angels out so that they could um, have relations and have their way with them forcefully. Um, And the the city of Sodom was absolutely destroyed because of its sinfulness, because of its depravity. And so Sodom is representative of the depravity of mankind. So when he talks about Jerusalem, Jerusalem has fallen into the spot of such depravity. And then Egypt. Egypt was the city or the the nation that made the, uh, the Israelites slaves. They're the ones that enslaved God's children. Until Moses came along and God used Moses to bring them out of slavery. So we see the nation of Israel at this time symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. And that's a sign that the nation of Israel has gotten so far apostate, so far away from God, that in this last back half of these three and a half years, you have these two witnesses declaring the gospel. You've got a small remnant of Israelites who have accepted Christ, but to the rest of the nation of Israel, as they are going through this battle with the... Uh, the... Uh, The beast, they are declaring the gospel, declaring God's truth. They are performing signs and wonders. It tells us that uh, one of them had the power to shut off the, the rain from the sky, just like Elijah did. It tells us another had the power to turn water into blood and perform all sorts of plagues or bring down all sorts of plagues, just like Moses did. And so they are performing signs. They are performing wonders. They are performing miracles. They are proclaiming the gospel, just like Old Testament prophets. Would do. And it tells us that they die, that they are killed, they are conquered by the beast. Look at verse 9. It says, For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. They're having basically Christmas because these two men were killed. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now remember, everything we've seen so far has been uh, left the earth in absolute chaos. And you've got these two men that come on the scene and can make the rain stop, can cause droughts worldwide, can send out plagues. doesn't tell us everything that they do, but it tells us that they do do this to some extent. And so the nations... If you remember back at the end of, I believe it was chapter 9, it tells us that the the hearts of the people were so hard that they refused to repent, they refused to turn to God despite all that they had seen, despite all that God had done. And so because their hearts were so hard, you've got these two men over here in the Middle East that are proclaiming the gospel, that are burning people up with fire from their mouths, that are making the rain stops, that are causing plagues to happen, begging people to turn to God, to repent. That was always the the message of the prophet, turn to God, repent of your sins, and yet they don't, and they rejoice when they die. Verse 11 says, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that time, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. So we have them raised from the dead. They hear a voice calling them. They rise up into heavens. An earthquake comes. A tenth of the city is destroyed. 7,000 people die. But then the last part of that verse says this, And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven in the the book of Revelation and other spots within Scripture doesn't just mean that they were scared and they sang a praise song. That is a sign of repentance. That is a sign of turning to God. And so what this story is telling us is there's going to come a time in this last three and a half years of the tribulation when God is going to protect these Jews that have become Christians in the first half. But during that last half, when all of this other stuff happens that we're going to start seeing from about chapters 13 on, when all this other stuff happens, God is going to have these two witnesses here in the midst of this raging of the the Antichrist, the midst of this battle with the Antichrist. Christ. You're going to have this uh, these two witnesses that are proclaiming the, the gospel. They are doing it with signs and wonders and miracles. And they die, and they are risen again three days later. <clears throat> and through the midst of all of this, God is going to grab the attention of those Israelites in Jerusalem, those who have survived this three and a half years. And there's going to be a mass salvation where 7,000 were killed, but it says all the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This last mass of Israelites will publicly, will uh, in mass proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So in this, we kind of have the fruition of some of the Old Testament prophet, promi- uh, prophecies excuse me, that have not yet been occurred in Israel or made to Israel that we have not yet seen. We can see that brought to fruition. We see Israelites as God's chosen people that God has worked through throughout history. God's grace shown to them but always in the same context that He has throughout His creation. This call to repent this call to turn to Him. And though it might take three and a half years, and they go through this awful time to get there, God sends this last bit of grace to the Israelites, and they accept Jesus Christ. Then in verse 14, it says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And then in the last few verses, we have the seventh trumpet being blown. And it says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Okay. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroying the destroyers of the earth." So we say we're kind of in this little parenthesis spot in the story. And so we have this story of Israel and God's working in the nation of Israel. But then we pull back and we step into heaven and this final trumpet is blown. And as it is blown, those... The the angels that are there, those 24 elders that surround God's throne, bow down before Him, and they declare His greatness. They declare His sovereignty. They declare that He is in control. Now, as we look at this passage, I think it's interesting that this is where everything is placed, and here's why. In chapter 11, where it tells us that the beast rose up against those two witnesses. And the beast is the one that led the, the nations to trample the nation of Israel. This is the first time in Revelation that we've seen mention of the beast and there are, I believe, 30 times in the book of Revelation that the beast is mentioned. So as we hit this last half, the beast, the Antichrist that comes forward, that takes over uh, control of the world, that rages against God, that has this um, demonic supernatural uh, powers or influence among him, as he comes on to the scene, We have this scene in heaven where we are reminded that God is in control. We are reminded. Look at what they say as they begin to uh, praise God. The first, the trumpet is blown and it says this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. As the uh, Antichrist comes onto the scene, as the beast comes onto the scene, he comes on as this one world ruler that all the nations are combined. He is the king of the world. And yet it says the nation of the world has become the nation of our Lord and of his Christ. When the beast rises up, when the antichrist rises up thinking that they are in control, we still we look back and we see in heaven and we are reminded no matter who thinks they are in control on the earth, God is always in control. God is always on his throne. God is always sovereign. God is always king. And then those elders began to fall down and worship and they begin to say We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. That is, He is unchanging. He was, He is, He is to come. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, is the God of eternity, future, and eternity past. It says, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Remember, the Antichrist has come onto the scene to reign. We are being reminded that God is always in control. Verse 18 is... It's interesting. And it's interesting because of this. So often we see God's love praised. And we see God's grace praised. And we see God's uh, patience praised. It is not often that we see God's judgment and God's wrath being praised. Now, they are attributes of God. God does deserve to be praised for all that He is. And in this verse... We see God's, God's wrath and God's justice and God's judgment being praised as God's enemies have tried to rise up, as God's enemies have tried to destroy His people, as God's enemies have tried to destroy that which He has redeemed for Himself. We see this declaration of praise that God is in control, and not only is God in control, but God's wrath and God's justice and God's judgment is being poured out towards his enemies, and he is being praised for that. <clears throat> Look at verse 18. It says, The nations raged, it means the nations fought against God. That's the whole purpose of the Antichrist, is to lead mankind against God. It says, But Your wrath came. Remember from this morning, God's wrath is his hostility, his anger towards sin, and his justice and judgment that comes with that. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Remember, as we move towards the end, as we move to the end, it is a time of sorrow because there are some who have not chosen Christ who will never get the opportunity to do so. But it's a time of rejoicing because the time of suffering, the time of punishment, the time of God's children being persecuted for their faith, the time of God's children being killed for their faith, the time where the wicked seem to get along or get get away with everything, all of that ends and God sets up His throne and God sends out His judgment. And for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, there is nothing to fear because Jesus took our judgment. Jesus took our punishment. But for those enemies, for those destroyers of the earth, for those who have rejected God and fought against God, for the nations that raised, as God sends out His wrath, as God sends out His judgment, it is a declaration of, I've won, you have lost, here's what you get for that. Now it is a great thing that we win, or that God wins, and we are on His side. But it is also a Well, God's wrath and God's judgment, though it's not a pretty thing, it is something worth being praised. And this whole story is a reminder that God is in control. No matter what happens, no matter what suffering that comes our way, whether it's in the end times or not, God sits on His throne. God has a plan. God is ultimately always in control. Whether it be through the saving of of Jewish believers, whether it be being reminded that God is control as the Antichrist tries to take power... We are encouraged during or in this passage to remind, to remember that no matter what happens in our life, we serve a God who is king, we serve a God who has a plan, we serve a God who has a purpose, and we serve a God who once everything is said and done, He stands at the end victorious for all time. There is none that can usurp him, none who can take his power, none who can raise against him to the point where he loses. God God wins 100% all the time. So this is a reminder for us that we serve a God who is in control, and we serve a God who has this planned out, then we serve a God who can be trusted 100% completely. Let me pray for us to close us out. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time that you've given us. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the reminder, God, that you are in control. God, that no matter what happens in our life, no matter what we have to endure, no matter what happens at the end time, no matter who rises to power, Father God, you are in control. Father God, as we move to election time later this year, God, no matter who becomes president or who becomes congressman or women, you are in control. Father God, no matter what happens in our life, sickness comes our way, change of jobs happens, loss happens. God, you are in control. Father God, let us always remember that you are a God with a purpose. You are a God with a plan. You are a God who is good, and you are a God who loves. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.